Welcome on in. It is the uh, first edition, the first installment of a new program, a new uh, feature that we're giving you here on Klaibs Online. It is Lunch with Klaibs and Joe. I am Joe Roderick. Of course, that is Mike Claiborne here with you across Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we're everywhere, Klaibs, and uh, that's what we've been trying to do over the last two months now. Yeah, now we got to figure out what we're going to have for lunch. If we're going to do this, we have to do it right. Uh, so what are you having for lunch today? Uh, right now, uh, I had a big breakfast. I, uh, I I went and ran six miles this morning and had a big breakfast. So now uh, uh, probably have a little bit of a later lunch. But I'm trying – you know what? I'm trying to drop some more uh, – I'm down about 15 pounds so far in quarantine. So I'm still trying to knock out about 10 more. So I'm down about three to five – in quarantine i've just been just working on weights and you know trying to figure out you know because all the gyms are closed so you have to find your own ways to do weight lifting and training and stuff like that so uh but i'm just trying to put on a little bit more muscle at this point yeah and you've uh i mean you've that's what you've been doing over the last uh, year or so is uh <laughs> two, I mean, if- two years in july uh, but that running stuff you can have, man. I got no. I'll ride with you. I'll ride, be right next to you all the way down the street. <laughs> no running happening here. Now I'm a walker. I will walk all day. So that running thing, you get sweaty. Oh, in a hurry. I am. Uh, I'm set this weekend to have Julia Conan on my uh, on my show <laughs> on my podcast. Yeah, she, uh, I think, top 10 Olympic qualifying distance runner, um, and she is, uh, she's constantly just posting miles. I think, believe, went to high school with your daughter. Yeah, and Carter Word, the Carter Word Academy, uh, the athlete factory, not only do they have great basketball, but Julia was a great uh, track champion as well, long distance runner, and they've had some other great sports over there, and uh I can't wait to see her in the Olympics. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk running with uh, with her, and it'll probably humble me a bit with how many miles that she puts in every. Uh... <laughs> Don't race her. Don't race her. That's all I'm going to suggest. Don't race her. So, uh, as you can see on the side of the screen, we have a huge uh, list of topics that we're going to get to over the uh, the next several. I don't, we don't have a set time. I mean, we're we're on the internet. We got nothing to do, nowhere to be. So we're just going to uh, sit here and talk with you about a number of things. But we do want to let people know about all of the other stuff that we have available up on Klaibs Online and some of the other stuff that we've been doing. As Klaibs, uh, you were a busy man last week with some of the interviews that you had with Mike Milbury with Dr. Rick Lehman, with um, Clarence Gaines Jr., with Jeremy Rutherford. So you were knocking those out every day last week, uh, along with uh, some of the other interviews and the This Day in History, Cardinal History that we're doing every day. So there's something for everybody that we've been putting up online, on Klaibs Online, every single day over the past uh, two months. Yeah, and this week's going to be more fun. Uh, Talk a little baseball this week with Derek Gould. Uh, I'm going to go to music route here a little bit. Uh, got a couple of friends uh, with the Doobie Brothers and Hall and & Oates and talk to them about what are they doing now. You know, the industry, you know, we're always used to concerts and stuff, and a lot of these guys are just starting to go out on the road. As a matter of fact, and I'm anxious to talk to uh, get Mark on, Mark Russo, saxophonist from the Doobie Brothers, they had to cut their tour short because Tom Johnston had come up with something uh, one of the original members of the Doobie Brothers, they were in Vegas and they had to cut the concert short just before COVID-19 was well known. And now as they're doing some backtracking, maybe 
COVID-19 was here a little earlier than some people suspected. So I'm looking forward to talking to him. But the other question is, Joe, you know, a lot of these guys are at an age where they're touring, they're in their late 60s and 70s, and then you have the Stones. That's a whole nother discussion. How are they going to treat touring? Or will they go back out on tour as they could run the risk of incurring some sort of, you know, uh, more serious issue with respect to health? So we're going to talk to them. Clarence James, Grant James, <laughs> Clarence Gaines Jr. is going to join us. And we'll talk about the last dance. The final chapters were installed last night. And uh, we've got a few other surprises up our sleeves for this week. So uh, we invite everybody to just keep checking us out. Uh, we like to have a lot of fun stuff out there. Uh, a lot of things to talk about. Even if we're not playing games, we found ways to do things. And believe it or not, we won't have one list. I think I'm listed out. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a few things that I'm working on as well. Nothing that I can announce just yet, but I have a, uh, a few for the weekend that I'm trying to go away from the uh, mainstream sports routes for, uh, for things. So we'll, we'll uh, keep in touch about those as the, uh, as the week goes on. We want to make uh, sure we mention our sponsors here for Klabes Online. Of course, Amron UE and Munganass St. Louis Acura, two of our uh, fine sponsors that we have here that uh, bring you the features such as this day in Cardinals history each and every day. And I do want to let people know ahead of time, tomorrow's this day in Cardinal history, we have some really, uh, really classic audio. We have a Cardinal call, Mike, from 1962 that people will be able to hear tomorrow on this day in Cardinal history. The Cardinals were nice enough to uh, send us some of the greatest highlights in the uh, organization's history, and you'll be able to hear Harry Carey on a call from 1962 Yay. tomorrow. Looking forward to that. And, you know, you and I were talking about the fact that people your age remember Harry near the end of, this, of the trail. I grew up listening to him, and he was flawless as a broadcaster, especially his tour duty with the Cardinals in the 60s. I was really young then. <clears throat> Uh, man, you know, if you listen to some of his calls, not only was there a lot of excitement, but he was truly a radio guy as far as his description of what was going on around him. Kind of like John Rooney. Whenever you hear John Rooney give the descriptions from everything, from the uniforms to the, the way the ballpark set up, Harry was, was as good as anybody in doing that. Well, let's get to our rundown here, Klaibs. As you can see on the uh, the side, we, we will get to the last dance. We'll uh, get to some of your conversations that you've had with Clarence Gaines over the past four weeks. But we actually had live sports on TV yesterday as NBC hosted a two-on-two -two, uh, golf match live from Seminole Golf Course down in Florida that saw Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy taking on Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf was the uh, was the fourth guy in that uh, in that mix. Before we get into any of this, I, I know I saw Jay Randolph Jr., who's played just about everywhere in the world. He's posted that he has never played at Seminole. You have been uh, fortunate enough to be on the course there at Seminole. So I, I want to ask first, what we saw on TV yesterday, did it do the course justice in your mind for, for what they uh, showcased it as? You know, I, I don't really think so. I, you know, it's a beautiful course. Uh, there's a lot of sand, a whole lot of sand. It's right there on the ocean. And there's these walls of trees that sometimes kind of knocks the wind down, but there are some other areas where it doesn't. So the wind changes basically between each stroke you take. 
Uh, it's it's a tough course, man. It, it's a really tough course. Um, Donald Ross built it. Uh, God, that course has got to be 70, 80 years old now. Uh, but it's a very nice course. Maybe one of the best courses I've ever had a chance to play on. When did you uh, When did you have a chance to get out there? This is like four years ago, three, four years ago. You know, I was supposed to play, ironically, supposed to play like that following. I left Jupiter on the 15th of March. I think I was set to play on the 18th. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very impressive course. My, the unfortunate thing about it, though, yesterday, Joe, was because we're used to seeing more camera angles and more things on the course to give us an idea. You know, I know they were limited as far as what they could actually bring out there, but it almost reminded you of an amateur event or if you had a relative or somebody you were following because you just didn't have a lot of camera angles to follow the ball. Uh, throw in the fact that if you didn't have the tracker, you know, when that ball was going up into the, the daylight, it was hard to pick up. So uh, I wish it would have done a little bit better job at that. But, you know, considering the circumstances, uh, anything is better than nothing. And it gave us it gave us more access though to the golfers as yeah. all four guys were mic'd up and they're talking the whole time. Even though they did keep their distance from each other, and that probably took away a little bit of what we could have seen. It still kind of it, it kind of showed you the competitiveness that uh, that those guys have when they're probably just out playing around together just for fun. Yeah, you know what I, I agree with you, but I was surprised. And granted, it's network TV. Because when I play golf with guys like that, there's a whole lot more cussing going on, okay? I mean, there's a lot of things. That I didn't think the trash talk was there like I expected to be with Phil and Tiger and Brady and uh, Peyton Manning coming up next week. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that, and maybe there'll be a little bit more trash talking, uh, and maybe there'll be a few more side bets along the way as well. You know, it's a really awkward situation to wire a guy because he's got to be careful what he says. He doesn't want to come across as some kind of jerk or maybe he drops an F-bomb or something. You know, you got to just be careful. So and the fact that they've never been wired like that before probably was one of the reasons why they were a little bit apprehensive. And those guys are all still young, too. I mean, they have years yeah. of endorsement deals in front of them that they're trying to get where – those four that we'll see uh, that we'll see this upcoming weekend, I, I think that's passed them by. You know, they they have all the endorsement deals, they have all the money in the world, and nothing that they say on live TV is going to uh, is going to affect any of that. Not going to lose anything if they do what they do. So I'm I'm looking forward to watching it. Uh, I hope they have better camera setups where you can really track the ball and. You know, I don't know who the announcers were for this particular event. Uh, I, I'm not that familiar with them. Uh, but I think kind of felt they were at a disadvantage as well. So hopefully we'll have some more on-site people there and they can track and follow. You got to see them in uh, in oh, shorts. Okay. You got to see them playing in shorts. And I, I have seen many professional golfers on social media saying that, you know, they looked professional. They looked good in their shorts yesterday. And maybe that's something the PGA can look at in the future is maybe uh, getting rid of the, the slacks rule. Well, you know what I think would be more appropriate – I think uh, you can probably have two tournaments a year, maybe three, uh, maybe in the summer especially, that you would have the option. I don't know if you want to do this totally, but I think you want to have some options where, all right, this is a, a short optional 
event that we're having, you know, something along that line. Uh, and I think one of the things you notice right off the bat, Joe, is how developed these guys are from the waist down. You know, you see where they get their power from. Uh, but I, I think overall it wouldn't be a bad idea. One of the things about golf is I think because of its tradition, I think they kind of shoot themselves in the foot sometimes as far as not being wi willing to expand their scope and try and make themselves more attractive to younger people. If they do that, I think it probably opens up some new revenue and some new avenues for them as far as just fan interest. Uh, I didn't hear anybody complaining about it yesterday, that's for sure. Moving on to uh, the uh, last dance. That's been appointment television for the last five weeks now. It's over. It's done. It left you, even though the story was told 22 years ago, it somehow left us all wanting more. You wanted to see, you know, more more footage from back then. And I think especially for me, somebody that grew up a Bulls fan, I was 12 years old, 13 years old when they won that final championship. It would have been really cool to see them go for number seven, have an opportunity for number seven. But just uh, we'll, we'll get into episodes nine and ten. But just overall, as a documentary of those ten episodes – your thoughts on the way that was all laid out. I was thoroughly impressed. Uh, it was hard to follow though, for some people, you know, because they would go from one year to another, they'd back up and go back and try and set the table. Uh, that was a little challenging initially, but I think the reason why it was so good is because it was the first time we'd ever seen behind the curtain of a person of greatness, like Michael Jordan. I think the closest thing we've ever seen to that is all the documentary, documentaries and books we've read and seen about Muhammad Ali. No one has had that sort of access before. And, and I tip my cap to the person who came up with the idea to video so much in an era, Joe, when this wasn't even thought of. And to think that this footage had been sitting on a shelf for so long, and I, I haven't had a chance to visit with Jason Harry yet about how much or how many man hours it took for them to put this together and how many hours of video did they have? Because I think the toughest decision they had to make, and remember, they had 10 hours to do this. How many more hours could they have gone, you know, had somebody said, keep it going? So, I mean, it, it was a phenomenal event. I don't know if there's anybody out there right now that we would have such a passion to follow. Um, I would say maybe Tiger – but I think more Tiger's personal life would not paint him in a favorable light. So that would be a little bit of a challenge. Um, I don't think he's had as much fun as Michael did. You know, some people would tell you Tiger can kind of be a little nerdy, if not cheap. So I'm not sure if it would convey in a, in a favorable light and certainly not in a 10 hour uh, event like we saw with the last dance. So yesterday, I I enjoyed jumping back and forth. I was able to keep up with that, and I liked the way they ended up coming back and telling the story at the end of it. The first time that I actually had an issue with it and I was a little confused with it was last night because they went from the 98 Eastern Conference Finals to the 97 Finals, to the 97 Championship, back to so they jumped back you know 11 months to go to that and that was the first time where i looked at that and i had to keep asking myself okay are they in the 97 or the 98 finals and that's because they played the same team 
both years. So I think yeah. that was the first time that I was confused and it took me a, a second to figure out where they were going with that. But in the end, you saw the story they were trying to tell. They were showing that Jordan wanted to get back to the finals again and beat the Jazz again. And the way that he just used motivation and found ways to motivate himself and drive himself. I mean, he Some of the stuff, I mean, he was making up out of thin air just to motivate himself, but you saw how great of a competitor he was, and you just don't see that in sports. No, I was amused by it, and you're right about the fact that he is uh, he was looking for things to motivate him. Uh, like the guy from Utah who was guarding him, and he just said, yeah, he was on my list, you know. <laughs> That, that's not a list you want to be on, but he needed some sort of motivation. And, you know, some guys, and I guess that's something that you and I will never understand is what it takes to get to that level where it, it comes, I won't say easy to you, but you have a better ability to embrace things. And sometimes you need a little bit more of a challenge. And I think that that's what he was looking for. Uh, calling him out is all you needed to do. And, and I'm a believer, Joe, that, you know, when you hear about, uh, bulletin board material and all that. I don't think that applies to, I think maybe it applies to 1% of all the athletes who actually can go out and do something about it. Um, and I think the rest of it is just for media types and fans. Say, oh, you can't get those guys riled up. Well, it's hard to get everybody on the same page. I don't care what sport it is. But when you get an individual who can take over, that's a whole different story. And I just felt like in his manner of approach, that's the way it's always been for him. This isn't just some newly acquired taste for him. He felt like this is something that I can always go back to this and turn it up a notch if I need to. You were around that Bulls team during that second three-peat. You were around them, and you, you've you talked to Clarence Gaines Jr. about the breakdown, and I'm sure you're going to talk more with him this week about the breakdown of that team after the 98 season. We know now that we know, you know, what happened in that 98-99 season, there was the lockout. It was shortened to 50 games. The Spurs ended up being the champions that year. Could the Bulls have beaten? I mean, what would that Bulls team in 98-99 would have looked like if Phil and if Michael would have come back? Well, I think it would have depended on who else came back with them. Uh, You know, I've said earlier – you know, Michael Jordan played a whole lot of basketball in that period of time. And as he was getting older, you had to wonder when was the clock going to turn on him. And I wasn't sure. Uh, I thought the fact that Pippen had been dealing with some nagging injuries, Steve Curry giving you everything he could give you. Uh, Rodman was moving in the other direction as far as his career. I'm just not sure if they would have been as much of a, a, a challenge as you would have thought. Uh, I don't know if they'd have got out of the Eastern Conference. Now, granted, the Knicks got to the finals as an AC, but who knows how things would have changed. I think had they faced San Antonio, they'd have had matchup problems up front with Duncan and, and Robinson for sure. You know, they had a pretty good team, San Antonio did. So it would have been an interesting challenge for sure on how they would have matched up. But then again, the Bulls, when you look back at the championships that they won, they had various matchups challenges. Um, I think Dennis Rodman talked about it before uh, matching up with uh, with Indiana, you know, who was really long up front, you know, and Reggie Miller was a guy you had to pay attention to. They had multiple scoring options and they had a really deep bench. I didn't think the Bulls had a deep bench uh, for a lot of reasons. And if you ever look at their roster and you say, 
whoa, how they went with this bunch? Uh, serviceable guys, but not guys who were different speakers, uh, which is what made Michael even greater, the fact that he had to work with maybe a lesser talented team. There, I, I just can't imagine Scottie Pippen, for all we saw during the 10 hours of the issues with his contract, would have come back for a one-year deal with the Bulls again for less money because you go and you look at what he signed for with, was it Houston? Was he traded to Houston after that? Portland. Portland. Okay. So then, then he went to Houston after that and then back to the, uh, then back to the bulls. But what he was traded for in the deal that he signed. Well, maybe it was Houston. I'm not sure it was one of the two, but anyway, he signed for a lot of money. That's uh, (laughs) plain and simple. He signed for a lot of money when he left the bulls and he was underpaid when he was with Chicago. I don't think he would have taken another year of being underpaid. Yeah, I pro- it probably would have gotten to him um, because I think what he probably would have argued, you know what, I'm one of the best players in the world, on the best team in the world, and I'm not being paid close to either. So um, I understood why they did what they did. I know some people, how could you do it? You know, I think the hardest thing for a general manager is to decide when is it time. Now, remember, they didn't have anybody young that could step in and help fill the void. They didn't have any high draft choices. Uh, free agency and, and the salary cap was really starting to have an impact on teams. So they were stuck to try and overpay for some guys one more year and then really be ass out probably wouldn't have worked. And I think that's one of the reasons why they did it. I'm not necessarily thinking it was the best idea. I know fans and the players obviously thought they would. But you know what, Joe? They would have had to have, in my opinion, a perfect storm. Staying healthy, getting some breaks, finding someone that they didn't anticipate stepping up, and just making sure nobody got complacent uh, after in going after a seventh championship. I think the plus factor was, as you mentioned, 50 games would have eased the burden somewhat. Uh, and this was an era where, where guys weren't taking nights off for rest, no maintenance nights, I mean, that sort of foolishness. So it would have been challenging, but it may have been a little easier. But, man, the dice to roll at that point would have been really big to roll. But when you look back on it, they haven't been back since. So maybe there was something to it. Uh, Pippen was traded to Houston that year for Roy Rogers and a draft pick that ended up being Jake the Snake Voskel. For uh, and then went there and signed a five-year, sixty-seven million-dollar deal with the Houston Rockets. Roy, Roy Rogers was a really good rebounder, good tough player up front. He's an assistant coach in the NBA now. Jake Vosco was out of Michigan. No, UConn, uh, UConn. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about that was in Michigan. I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking of Dugan fight. Uh, anyway, same guy. Uh, Vosco really didn't pan out in the NBA, but you know, it was one of those things that was more of a give me what you can for, you know, because nobody's going to overpay for Scotty at that point, considering they, they would have to pay him eventually down the road. Vosco, a great head of hair. He was on that team with uh, Khalid El-Amin and Rip Hamilton. That's yes. uh, that, those UConn, uh, that first wave of uh, really good UConn franchises. So we've seen the 10 hours. We've seen maybe a, a new look into Michael Jordan that we, that we hadn't seen before. The debate between Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, all three of those guys, I think that you you see an intensity out of Jordan that you don't see with LeBron. 
that you did see in Kobe, I, I think is is kind of how you can mix and match or kind of compare those three right now when you look at just how they were on the court and you want to look for comparisons or differences. Yeah, I, I don't really think there's a comparison. I think Michael is in the clubhouse with the league. Uh, the championships are one thing. I think statistically, you know, Michael was a beast of both ends of the floor. You know, and he was he could be a real tough matchup problem defensively. You know, Kobe basically shot his way into what you would deem greatness. You know, field goal percentage is nowhere near what Michael's was. Uh, Kobe worked hard. He was a good, tough player. And LeBron's game is just completely different than those two. And his numbers don't even come close to what Michael has been able to do. A different era, by the way. Uh, you know, for, for both of those guys, all three of them. And, and that has a lot to do with it. You know, I, I look at those teams that the Bulls matched up with in the playoffs, whether it was in the second or third round of conference finals or even the finals. You look at some of those rosters, those were some good players that they were facing. I don't necessarily know if I could say the same thing about some of the teams that LeBron faced and certainly some of the teams that Kobe faced where they were that stacked. Um, back then – you needed two guys to be a champion. Now you need three at least in order to be a champion. And uh, it's a little bit of a different game to play. It's not as physical. Uh, I just think the toll would have taken uh, a real severe chunk out of Kobe and or LeBron had they played in that era. I think one of uh, the things that a lot of people learned last night was about Steve Kerr and his upbringing and what happened to his dad back when he yeah. was uh, back in the eighties, uh, which I, I, I had read that story prior. I knew that was coming and I was a little surprised to see the amount of people uh, that were shocked by, by that story, just given how outspoken Steve Kerr is these days on politics, kind of the back, you know, one of the reasons why he probably has an interest in, in political uh, agendas. Well, he comes from a, obviously a well-educated family. Uh, both family members, are parents, are educators. Uh, I know Steve just a little bit. He and I have a mutual friend, uh, and I got to know him when he was a player, and I've crossed paths with him since then. Uh, passionate guy. He knows his lane, uh, but there's an inner confidence about himself saying, you know, don't take me for granted, and I think it was proven in the documentary. I, I think the, the the story about his dad was timely, though, uh, and even how the question was posed to him, did you and Michael ever talk about your dads? Both ended up being murdered. They didn't. But the one thing that I remember about Steve Kerr, and they showed it in the doc about the fact when Michael said, hey, they're going to double me, I'm coming to you. He said, I'll be ready. That's all you needed to know about what Steve Kerr was about. And now to see him evolve into a coach, I think every player who ever plays for Steve Kerr will have a greater appreciation about him because, you know, a lot of these guys, they don't really know about these former players. I mean, these coaches who are former players. You know, I'll give you a good example. You know, the reason why Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson seen the mesh, you know, Phil Jackson was Dennis Rodman back in the day. Long, gangly arms. He was a real nightmare to play against defensively. Not a big scorer. He could score. But if Phil Jackson came in the game, he was coming in to guard somebody. And he was, like I said, a big gangly guy. It really made your, your night difficult. And he was a free spirit himself. So I think he and Dennis probably got each other from that standpoint. 
Uh, you you mentioned Dennis Rodman the the story they told about him with his uh his transition into wrestling as you you mentioned earlier that he was maybe focused on other things after that 98 season I I'm a, I'm a wrestling fan you know that I'm a uh, and I remember flipping back and forth between Nitro and Raw every single Monday back during the uh, the mid to late 90s I did not know that Dennis Rodman went on Nitro during the NBA Finals. I'm well aware that he was that he had that tag match, him and Hulk Hogan against Carl Malone and Diamond Dallas Page. Like I remember that storyline. I remember him attacking Carl or attacking DDP. I didn't remember I didn't know that it was during the finals between game three and four. He just jumped on a uh, on a plane to go fly to WCW Monday Nitro. Imagine I can't. I'm trying to think of an athlete today that would go and do something like that, and the backlash that would come. I guess of the meltdown that we saw Antonio Brown have this past year, maybe somebody like him would have done that. But I feel like in today's era with social media, that that would take a lot of. It would take a lot of balls to go in the middle of a playoff series and go do something else. Apparently, Dennis has them. <laughs> um, you know. You just touched on something about social media. Social media would have changed a lot of things on that Chicago Bull team. I think in Rodman's case, it wasn't the fact, you know, what do you do to a guy if he misses practice in the finals? What do you do? You run him? Do you you bench him? I mean, you know, this is one of your best players, so you roll with him. And you just take a deep breath because at the end of the day, he still was one of your best players, and he proved it the following night that he played. And so my question would have been, what would have been worse, Dennis Rodman playing or going and being involved in a wrestling event or Michael going out playing 36 the day before the final game? I mean, you know, both these guys know their bodies better than anybody. Uh, I think, again, it was more of a media thing where we were all appalled by it. And, you know, rightfully so, I might add, because we never seen it before. But I'm sure there are people who have – crossed that line before that we just haven't heard about. I think it was because it was publicized so much because he was in a different city. That meant, that, that meant a lot to it as well. Which one of those two do you think would have been on Twitter or Instagram if between Jordan and Rodman? Which, which one was more likely to set up a Twitter or Instagram oh, account? Rodman. Rodman by far because Rodman craves attention. I think Michael had made the deal with himself that because of who he was, he was never going to be in a position to honk his horn like we see what Dennis Rodman was able to do. So I, I think it would have been certainly Rodman in the clubhouse with the lead. We're, we're talking about a guy who, if Twitter had broken out, he'd have millions of followers. I mean, he'd be like, He'd be up there. I mean, who who has the most followers now on Twitter that we know? Who 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 do you think has the most followers? Most on Twitter. I thought it was it Obama. Is he the? Does he have the most on Twitter? He'd be somewhere in the Obama vicinity as far as as people want to see. But 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 the other thing with that is, when does that act grow old? You know, yeah. when you oh geez, man, what now? So you have a very small window where you can do that. And uh, I think Rodman would have been the guy. I feel like it's almost – you remember when Charlie Sheen had his big uh, – when he had yeah. his big rise and fall? I feel like that it would have been something similar to that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think that 
these things have a short shelf life. Uh, your 15 minutes of fame and glory is what it comes down to. Uh, it just translates now into pushing sin and, and how you get it out there. But it, I think that all these guys go through it. Uh, very few guys have the staying power. Uh, I think the ones like Brady and Tiger and people like that, they're selective in what they do and when they say it, which is why we're always intrigued by what they do, which is why they have huge followers on social media also. Let's uh, move on to baseball. Let's move on to the MLB as we're still awaiting the start of the 2020 season. This past week, uh, the AP put out an article a 67-page draft of Major League Baseball's proposed 2020 operations manual was sent out to all of the teams. Among some of the uh, uh, highlights here, team personnel will be banned from eating at restaurants on road trips. Mascots will be banned from the field. Uh, high fives, fist bumps, bat boys, and bat girls will not be allowed. Spitting will not be allowed. And the uh, in the new rules of baseball in 2020, and one of the uh, another one, showers are going to be discouraged at the ballpark. So we're we're getting back into kind of little league, where you show up in your in your uniform, and then you leave in your uniform, and you go take a shower back at your your own house or apartment. I don't think many of these rules will will fly. Um, I know this whole little league notion. The only thing I can compare it to is in basketball where uh, teams would be on the bus in their uniform, but they would bring their clothes to the arena, shower and change and go home or go on the road or whatever. I don't see that happening. Uh, there are a few other things, the spitting thing. You know, are you going to – a guy's been doing it all his life and then you're going to say, ah, don't do it. It's going to take some time. And I think we have to be very careful on the uh, safety police. How do you regulate that? Because somebody's going to tell you to go bleep off, you know, if you keep harboring the notion. Now, I know you want to set some examples and do some things the right way, but I think you have to be in a position of using common sense and, and hoping the athletes will be able to find the things that actually are workable compared to impossible. Uh, so that thing was a proposal. I'm going to tell you, I would say a third of that stuff won't stick. Yeah. And when you get into the whole, if you're, you're saying no high fives, no fist bumps, but then when you're on the field, you're allowed to tag a guy out. So there's too many many other pitfalls to it. Yeah. But you know what? I I think Joe, they had to put something on paper. Uh, Again, it's a proposal. There's no mandate. There's nothing etched in stone. I think the players obviously have a chance to respond also. So I I look at this situation as being one that's still fluid. Ideas are still welcome. Uh, I think what you're going to have to find is welcome and and realistic ideas that can actually be applied. Because if you expect an umpire to enforce those rules when they're trying to figure out balls and strikes, I think you're putting too much on them as well. So who's going to regulate this? Who's going to enforce it? How's, how long is the grace period before we do enforce? I mean, there's so many things that go into this. That's why I say, everybody, let's just take a deep breath here before we start thinking this is how it's going to be from now on. As a uh, member of the Cardinals broadcast, have you been told anything? Have you heard anything? Has there been any kind of discussion as far as what uh, what to expect or what things might look like on, on your end? 
No. Um, and you know what? I kind of took the approach until they asked me. There's no reason for me to get it. Just let me know what you're thinking or where we're headed with it. Let me know what time I need to be there. Let me know what you want me to do. Uh, this is so out of everybody's hands. Uh, it's only my hope that the people who are making a decision or consulting with people who do this on some sort of formal basis to get an idea of what would work and what be be challenging and what wouldn't work at all. Um, but no, they haven't said anything. And you know, uh, people who I report to have been pretty transparent about keeping me informed. But uh, you know, bottom line is, and I think John Mozeliak said it early in the game. I just don't know. And I think that still applies for a lot of people with regard to where this thing is headed. So we just have to wait and be patient and just uh, hope that things uh, work out. But I think we're going to have to have a little bit more of a broad scope on where we take this next. Are we expecting to hear anything this week from the player side? I think you'll probably hear something. They got about till the end of the month to get something figured out. So they'll go back and forth. And just because we don't hear about them, doesn't mean they're not talking. And I think that's important to remember. I would rather them not talk. I would rather for them to just get in the room and figure it out and then just let us know because the public bantering back and forth, and it's basically been the players doing more of the talking. I think one of the concerns, though, is what numbers financially are we supposed to go by? Because a lot of players have looked at the most recent statement about players or owners losing 640000 a day or per game. And look at that with a jaundice eye on how they actually came up with that number. There's already been people saying not even close. So we don't know what the numbers are. And I think that's one of the issues with the players. They want to know what the real reasonable numbers are. Not necessarily hard numbers because everybody does their books differently, but something that goes into a mainframe that they can actually disseminate and have a legitimate response to. I'm going to uh, jump around a little bit here. I'm going to jump just to uh, flip uh, four and five as the NHL has also come out today. Greg Wyshynski and Emily Kaplan of ESPN had an article up on ESPN.com right now about some of the keys to plays resuming in 2020. And one of those ideas that they have in place is a 24-team postseason. So they would just be jumping kind of right into a 24-team postseason, three weeks of training camp, and then going into the playoffs to restart the, uh, the hockey season as uh, that would be – Kind of the uh, they would have I guess two hub cities instead of four hub cities. So they're they're sticking with the we're gonna put the guys all in one city. We're gonna have one, two, three arenas in that city that they can play at, and we're gonna get as many games done as possible to wrap this season up. Well, I guess here's my question: Is this supposed to be part of the playoffs? Because you mentioned 24. There's more than 24 teams in the NHL. So what happens to those other teams? Do they just go home for the summer? I mean, I guess uh, you just send those you send those seven teams home and you give them the top seven picks in the draft, right? Yeah, I guess that works. Uh, but you know what? I, I guess if you're looking late in the year and there's two points on the schedule that you think you have a shot at now, all of a sudden that team wasn't going to be on the schedule. And I understand you have to change the schedule anyway. It's probably best. Um, but I think they need to have, I think a tournament would probably serve better. Uh, and because they've determined that they're not going to have fans. That's unfortunate. They feel like they can't have fans 
uh, even if this thing progresses where there is a comfort level. Uh, to isolate themselves like that, I think it's going to be a real challenge. Just like I think the logistics of baseball, where they say, well, you know, you can't have visitors on the road. And you know, Okay, we'll see how that works. Uh, so I, I really look at the NHL, it's a little bit more forward than maybe I think you would expect, but I think it's something they feel that they have better control over. So when you look at that situation, you say, well, okay, they, they try to do the best they could with the resources. Remember, they don't have sheets of ice to go out and play on and practice on. Guys can go play catch in baseball, go hit in the cage. In basketball, there's an open gym. In the NHL, you know, you got to be on ice. You got to have a rink. You got to do all the other things that in court requires more people. So I'm going to wait and see how this works. But you, you know what? Just get it started and, and be cautious about it. And I think that's what they're trying to do. Hey, depending on where these hubs are, obviously the weather plays a factor. I'm guessing they're not going to have these hubs down in Florida or Arizona where it's going to get start getting really, really hot in June and July. But as I, you know, I talked about, I had Luke Korak on, on my show this weekend, and he was saying, you know, even in St. Louis, I mean, you were there. You were there during the Stanley Cup games. Even in St. Louis in June, the, those, the, the weather gets really hot, and you start looking at the, uh, the condition of the ice there at a place like Enterprise, and you can't play games in July and August and expect to have a, a nice sheet of ice. Well, yeah, you can, and here's why. You won't have the fans in the building. Okay. And the heat that the fans generate and the humidity, that's the big issue. I don't think you have an ice problem if nobody's in the ring. Uh, you know, as hot as it might be outside, they can maintain a comfortable temperature because they don't have anybody else in the building. So I don't think that's going to be as big of a factor as maybe we would have thought. But your point is a valid one. If it wasn't for that and we were in the June, yeah. We, we'd have a hard time doing it. But now that they've said we're not going to have fans, then I don't think it really has an impact on, on the weather here. And, and in most rinks, I think they could keep it cool enough where you'd have good ice. We want to uh, remind people they're listening to the debut or watching the debut of Lunchtime with Klaibs and Joe right here on Klaibs Online as we're broadcasting on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter as we plan to do so each and every Monday for the uh well I, we'll just make it a regular thing i mean we'll add it into the rotation of everything else that we have co- going for you right now we got nothing else going the nope. only thing we got to do is make sure we have some legitimate lunch next week i'm telling uh, you what we get uh once these restaurants in missouri start opening up who knows i'm in illinois who knows when the hell any of this is going to be opening up in illinois but i we could take this show on the road once uh once restaurants are running at a uh, full capacity there's there's no reason why we can't do that we're on to something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's brought to you by Amron, Illinois, and Munganass St. Louis Acura. Also, Town & Style. Uh, Klaibs, what do you have? What are you working on for the next uh, Town & Style column that you're doing? Well, we've got a, our most recent one, and it comes out Wednesday. Danny Meyer of uh, Union Square Hospitality Group, also of Shake Shack fame. Is, uh, I did a little Q&A with him. We had a whole lot of fun. And it's different. Than the podcast that we did. I want to make sure people, ah, I already heard that. No, this is different. So I've got some fun questions for him that uh, we, we're going to do. Uh, we got some other fun people that we've already talked to. We're just waiting on the right time to unveil them. And I came up with an idea for a guy today that I'm going to do. I just got to call him and ask him. 
But uh, it, it's been fun. It's a really nice magazine, and you can go online and read it. It's at your local Snooks and Deerbergs, in any place where good things are sold. Uh, it's a really nice magazine, so I would suggest people go out, not just to read my stuff, but some other good stories that are in there. The uh, the final thing I wanted to get to, Jim Trotter of the NFL Network, he tweeted out the other day that NFL owners are going to vote this week on a resolution that it would improve a team's draft position if it hires a person of color as a head coach or general manager. Currently, there are only two black GMs and four minority head coaches in the NHL or in the NFL, which matches a 17 year low. Again, this has to be voted on by two thirds of the owners to even pass. That's probably unlikely, but just the idea being thrown out there of improving your draft position based on the race of the person you hire for a front office GM job or a head coaching job, where does it say that we're at in the NFL? It says the NFL is is in bad shape. Um, one of the reasons why I don't follow the NFL as much as I used to is I don't like the way they do business. The whole minority hiring thing has always been an issue. And I think what they're trying to do is say, hey, look, we're trying to do something. You're so deep in the hole in how you deal with that, it's embarrassing to even bring it up. And I know some people say, well, it's a start. Well, I don't know, is it a start or not? Because I think the impact that it has league-wide is something I'm not comfortable with. Uh, There's got to be a better way to do it. Um, And I know some teams would try to incorporate more minorities in their intern programs and things of that nature. Uh, but I think that this current setup and what they're trying to do to entice people to uh, to hire somebody because you get a draft pick, I'm not sure if I'm on board with that yet. Uh, there's got to be another way. I don't have an answer right now, uh, and apparently the NFL doesn't have one either, but it's one that I think should be explored again and, and maybe have some more people – who don't look like them in the room to even explore some other options where it doesn't become offensive to people of color, you know, like it is come to people who aren't, who aren't black, who aren't minority. I, I think people who, who don't look like me probably say, what the hell is this all about? And then you have people who do look like me and say, what the hell is this all about? So nobody's happy with it as far as I'm concerned. And I think maybe that's not the right term. Maybe they're just not comfortable with it. Not comfortable with it. Uh, I think that there's got to be a better solution than this, uh, because you're basically selling your soul in order to enhance your lie instead of interviewing people who are qualified and who deserve an opportunity. And that's what we're missing here. As we uh, as we wrap things up here on the first edition of Lunch with Claves and Joe, we mentioned it at the start. Who do you have uh, coming up again this week for your one-on-one interviews? Well, we're going to have a chance to visit with Derek Gould later in the week, Mark Russo of the Doobie Brothers, Porter Carroll Jr. of Hall and & Oates, uh, and, of course, Clarence Gaines Jr. and Dr. Rick Lehman will join us. I uh, wanted to get his thoughts on the, uh, the proposal that Major League Baseball has floated out there to see what he thinks can fly or not. So we've got that coming up this week. Uh, I always suggest everybody to do is just keep clicking in and checking us out. We always have some fresh stuff up there. We have a lot of fun with you. You're having fun. we got a lot of other people that are involved, and we're looking to add on some people down the road here. So uh, this will be the place for everybody to come to be informed, to be entertained, 
and just get their mind off of whatever else is going on. And believe it or not, you might even learn something here. So we'll have a good time with it no matter what. I want to uh, let people know. So every day we have been putting up this day in Cardinal history. Today, we take you back to the year 2000. Mark McGuire, he breaks, uh, he passes Mickey Mantle on the uh, on the all-time home run list. Tomorrow, we have classic Cardinal audio from 1962 on uh, on this day in Cardinal history. You're going to hear the voice of Harry Carey giving a uh, giving the call for a moment in 1962. We don't travel too far for May 20th. Uh, that'll be on Wednesday, just 2018 for the memory there. 2009 is where we go back on Thursday, and then on Friday, I got to say, I, on Friday, I'm not sure where uh, where we go with that, because I sent you two memories for uh, for that day to record, and I'm going to be <laughs> honest, Klebs, I haven't listened that far ahead yet, so I'm not sure which direction we go in uh, on May 22nd, so we'll, uh, it'll be either 1962 again or 1976, so uh, something for everybody, we go all over the place. That's all you can do is stand by. Yeah, we go all over the place with this day in Cardinal history, and they're all up there. Uh, it's available on Spotify and iTunes, and everything is right there for you to uh, to click on and go back. You can go all the way back. We started this on March 26th, the day that was supposed to be Cardinal's opening day, and you can go and find all of uh, this day in Cardinal history for the last uh, well eight weeks now that we've uh, that we've been doing it. So plenty of stuff for uh, for people to uh, to go back and uh, and watch. Clabes, right. uh enjoy your late lunch if that's where you're uh, you're headed right now. We will uh, we'll see everybody right here next Monday. But as we said, we're always available for you right there on Clabes Online.